This is Joshua Hatton with One Nation Under Whiskey Podcast. I am joined today, and I'm joined as always by my good friend, my business partner, the man without a tan. (laughs) (laughs) Man, that was going nowhere, and then, boy, did you just hit it out of the park. Nailed it, right? Well done. So, you know, anytime we go somewhere, like for instance, we were at, we were at malt stock, which we'll talk about in a little bit. And people say to me, where's Jason? And I tell them, look for the white walker. And uh, so the white walker, man with no tan. Got all sorts of little nicknames for you. <laughs> I, I am the white walker. My cousin is called Johnny. So we're right in the wheelhouse. Oh, like John Snow? <gasps> oh, I see what you did there. Johnny Walker. Okay. It's going to be a long episode. Well, see. You still haven't even yeah. said my name. Say my oh, name. Call me by me. your name. Is that that movie? <laughs> Proclaim my moniker. Um, your name, last I heard, was Jason Neal Johnston Yellen. <laughs> Thank you, Joshua Morrissey. Hatton. <laughs> uh, uh, I tell you, I'm doing pretty good on this Thursday morning September 19. And do you know why? Wow, that's a lot of detail. Yeah. Today is my youngest daughter's birthday. Well, look at that. Mm-hmm. September 19th. Yeah. She She's turned now a the, whopping yeah. 11 years old. A whopping 11 years old. How I forgot to tell her. Halfway to 22. I'll have to throw that at her a little later. <laughs> is, is that an annual tradition in your house? Do you? I thought I told you this. When I turned... 35, the first thing Haida said to me when I woke up, she says, happy birthday, you're halfway to 70. And that hit me. <laughs> really? Yeah, it kind of did hit me. And Man, so... That was a whopping 10 years ago now. Oh, fuck. <laughs> now you're halfway to 90. Womp, 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 womp. At this point, yeah. at this point I'm, I'm hoping that this is halfway to 90. Like I, I hope I'm not three quarters of the way to 70 or whatever the, the math works out as. Yeah, yeah, because you are officially halfway to 90 yourself, the big four or five. But I hope that's where I'm going, I, I, you know. I hope I'm not just... Oh, so you're like, what if I only make it to 46? <laughs> well, I was thinking only to 70, but yeah, you could... <laughs> <laughs> you could really depress me and say, what if I don't make it to 46? Well, I guess it depends on how many malt stocks we go to. That, that will help dictate how long our livers last. I tell you, I was, I was afraid going in. I really, I really thought it was going to be wall-to-wall drinking. And it was much more... <laughs> I'm trying to be careful with my words because it was still wall-to-wall drinking. The opportunity is there for wall-to-wall drinking. Correct. But... You're also free to to make your own decisions. And it's funny because that's a line that my wife will often throw at me when I wake up hungover of a morning. (laughs) Like, it didn't have to end like this. And I'll Mm. say things like, yes, it did. Like when you woke up the day after the keeper's banquet feeling like death warmed up, 
Some yeah. people would say, well, you didn't have to drink all day and all night and then go back to Jason's hotel room and drink until two in the morning. And I say, yes, you did. I you did. didn't have an option. Well, let's be very clear. I woke up like death frozen over. <laughs> I, I did not feel as good as someone who had woken, you know, had been dead. How do you say it? Death warmed up. Yeah. I didn't feel that good. <laughs> but but let's, you know, I realized we started talking about malt stock without letting some people know exactly what malt stock was. Now, I know regular listeners will have heard some interviews that I did in the past at malt stock. We've touched on it here and there, but there may be some people who are listening to this for the first time who have no idea what malt stock is. Could you explain to our good listeners what it is we're talking about? Yeah, it's a relaxed gathering that happens annually in the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. The town, I don't think either you nor I should try and pronounce it, but it is about an hour and a half east of Amsterdam, Mm -hmm. which was a lovely drive out to it as well. It happens on an old scout's ground, and so there's tons of space to stretch out, meet people, talk to people, drink whiskey, eat a ton of food, and... Tasty food at that. Mm-hmm. I was I was really quite yeah. happy with it. Yeah. And there are master classes. We happened to run a couple on the Friday night. Uh, there 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 were other master classes going on at the same time. There was the quiz, which was fantastic, and that and was not good. Fun. You know, and, and uh, I said this to Tune, who's you know I think key organizer, one of five organizers. Correct. Um, yep. There's a bunch of great people putting it together and a bunch of great volunteers helping it run so smoothly. But I, I said to Toon about the, the quiz, I was worried about the quiz coming in because I was thinking, oh gosh, 250 of Europe's uber whiskey geeks are all congregated in one place here. <laughs> uh-huh. They're, they're going to outdo one another on the second water temperature at Ben Riach Distillery. And... <laughs> <laughs> and the quiz was much more relaxed than that. It was it was much more fun than that. And I, I didn't know a lot of the answers because, you know, why would I? I'm only from Scotland and work in the whiskey industry. <laughs> exactly. You've got no advantage whatsoever. <laughs> None at all. Zero. And, um, and so it was fun. Well, uh, one of the rounds that I particularly liked was a view from a distillery rather than a view of a distillery. distillery. Instead it was, if you were standing at the front door of this distillery looking outwards, here's what you would see. Which distillery are we standing at? Yeah. (laughs) That was fantastic. And I know you like, you like the one with the images. You're a, you're a graphical learner. I I am. I'm, I'm, I like visual cues. So yeah, so that's, that's where we were. The weekend before last, and while this isn't the news segment, just a, a little hint to people, we recorded a few different interviews at Maltstock, including, actually this wasn't an interview, it was a live tasting. It was us verse, or I would say, maybe not verse, but us doing a side-by-side live tasting with Mark Watt of Caddenheads, and that was good, good fun. Yeah, what I liked about that was we were doing back-to-back master classes with Mark and we never revealed our lineup to him and he didn't reveal his Cadenheads lineup to us. Mm-hmm. But 
unbeknownst to the other one, you and I brought four whiskeys for the first masterclass and four different whiskeys for the second masterclass. Yeah. And Mark did the exact same. <laughs> and so over the course of those two separate masterclasses, we managed to get through 16 different expressions. Yep. yep. Which was a really nice way to spend a Friday evening in the Netherlands. I didn't complain once. No, no, no. So it was lovely. Yeah, great time, great people, great industry presence. And then the attendees, very kind, very knowledgeable, very enthusiastic. I didn't see anybody fall over drunk. Uh, I didn't hear anybody getting belligerent. It no, was no, no, no. it was all very relaxed, which is one of the key taglines of malt stock is <laughs> relaxed. relaxed. Do what you want to do, but do it in a relaxed way. And for this being the 10th anniversary and my mm-hmm. first time there, but not my last time there, they absolutely were hugely successful in what they wanted to achieve with that, with that festival, that gathering. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. It was a good time. So, and we will have more to report in, in later episodes you know, through the lens of the different interviews that we've done. I'm really excited to get those out to people. However, today's episode is not a malt stock focused episode. Rather, this is this is us bringing back Scott and Becky Harris from Catoctin Creek. They were in uh, season, somewhere in season two, we interviewed them. But you, Jason, returned to Catoctin Creek with a very specific plan in mind. I did indeed. And it was it was interesting because just to connect this to what we just said about malt stock, I returned from malt stock on the Monday night. I you know I, I fly in and out of Dulles, uh, just outside of Washington DC. And I've got about a two hour drive down the road. And so after spending the weekend in the Netherlands, I <laughs> arrive at Dulles I get my car, I drive two hours down the road, I wake up in the morning and get my kids on the school bus, I, I do my bit as as dad, and then I jumped in my car and drove two hours back up the road to Catoctin <laughs> Creek. And and it was great because Scott had said, listen, if this is too much, you know, we can postpone this. And I said, Scott, not only are you and Becky worth returning back up the road for, mm-hmm. But we want to kick off this special collaboration that we're doing with you. I don't want to de- delay this. I want this to be a thing that happens today, right now. Yes. And uh, and I'm coming up the road. So uh, it was great. I was I was energized. I, I wasn't sleepy in the slightest driving up or driving back down. Mm-hmm. We had great conversation uh, while we were at the distillery together. Scott and I even made time for some lunch together, which mm-hmm. is always a treat. And yeah, so project time, collaboration time. Before you go on, so you, so you mentioned coming up the road. I think I saw, who was in that movie? <laughs> I saw that one, or at least part of it. Did you I, see that movie? I'm hanging you out to dry, my friend. I am not wow. not joining you on wow. this. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> all right. We all know where Joshua is trying to take this. You, sir, are—I don't know where your mind is. I it was, was a road s- trip movie with two two best friends. Um, well, I, 
I was going to say we're going to head you off at the pass, but I know you'll just turn that into a naughty reference as well. You've also seen that movie. Volume three. I haven't seen all. Anyway, continue. Can I get back to, I get back to what I'm talking <laughs> yes. about? You may. I will. <laughs> so, so, what, so what are we doing? We're going to throw this over to Becky in just a moment, but mm-hmm. I want to frame this. You and I, sir, mm-hmm. when we're doing tastings, one of the questions we get is when are you doing another Catoctin Creek release? We get that a lot. And I, I love hearing that from people because it means that our first release, the two-year-old that mm-hmm. was in the Sonoma County Chardonnay for about, what, 15, 16 months and then went into X bourbon slash X rye for another 15, 16 months. The two-year-old? Yeah, yeah. Be- Becky and I will actually talk about it or, or Scott and I will talk about it, but it'll, it'll come back up later in this episode. My- I will revisit this with one of the heresies. Yeah, revisit, because uh, I know one of them, we did a three-year-old as well. That was the second one. That was a three-year-old. That was the second one. And I have a feeling that one of them we needed to transfer into New Chard Oak just for like 30 minutes or something. That was the second one. That was the second one. Okay. And that That was was to meet legal requirements. Yeah. Yeah. The three-year-old that we bottled, the second Catoctin Creek, had only spent its life in Sonoma County Chardonnay. Mm-hmm. And yes, for us to legally call that a rye, it had to go into the new charred oak. Yeah. And yes, it was in there for 30 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> Which, and I, I say this in many of my tastings, and I, I, we must have said it at some point in the podcast, you can legally have bourbon new make spirit or rye new make spirit come out of your still, have it go into a new charred oak bucket and then immediately transfer that into a glass bottle. Mm-hmm. And you can label that as bourbon, if that was the spirit, rye, if that was the spirit, and you're completely legal, you're completely covered. So you went the extra distance <laughs> and said, no, 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 we're going to do this for a full 30 minutes. He's going the distance. We did. We did. That's how that's how thorough Scott and Becky Harris are. They were like, no, we will not use the new charred oak bucket today. We we will fill this into cask for a whole 30 minutes. So I believe it or not, that my understanding and I, and, and I don't know if the laws have officially gone into place, but we may have talked about this on the podcast. We definitely brought it up in the One Nation Under Whiskey group where the TTB is looking to change the cask size specific for bourbon and rye. So you would have to put it into something that is around 50 gallons or 53 gallons. So the bucket may not work anymore. The, you know, quarter casks, 30, you know, 30 gallon casks may not work anymore. Yeah, and my understanding is those new regulations are still in a discussion period. I think they actually extended the discussion period. Oh, okay, okay. So, um, so yeah, so keep using your new chart oak bucket for the meantime. Mm. Use it until you're told to stop. And 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 I'm sure you're the same. I I don't know anybody 
who's running New Make Spirit into a new Chardock bucket. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Just to be 100% crystal clear on this issue. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know anybody who's doing it. Can you imagine you had to make a new, new Chardock bucket every day? Every and after day. you'd filled it once and bottled it, you couldn't actually use it again because then you'd have a refill uh, ex-bourbon bucket. Oh yeah, at that point, is it like, is that <laughs> is that corn whiskey at that point? Could you imagine? Is it, you know, small batch bucket matured <laughs> for a bit and rye? <laughs> oh, gosh, the places you can go with the TTB. <sighs> so so anyway, so so back to what I was saying. So so you and I uh, began a search for the the third Catoctin Creek release. And we tasted mm-hmm. a bunch of casks from mm-hmm. Catoctin Creek. And we we tasted one cask in particular. And after tasting, we thought, this is interesting. Yes. Yeah. This, this has a place to go. And, and then we started wondering what place might that be and what role might we get to play in that? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. trying to be a little more hands-on. And, and, and I, I said this to, to Scott and Becky when I saw them. As independent bottlers, we don't get to play around nearly as much as we wish we could. We we put out a Whiskey Jubilee Chicago bottling that was finished, a, a light whiskey, finished in an X-Rye barrel that had also been used to mature IPA. That was a fantastic, you know, collaboration that we had with Schmaltz uh, and with High High West. West. Yep. It was tremendous. Then we just put out that batch earlier this year, which were remaining casks from that. We we put together a, a small vatting of those casks and released them online and into retail hugely successful in both mm-hmm. those places. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got to send our ex-wild turkey down to Oaxaca and put the Hovan into that for our, our Reposado online release. Correct. Yep. That that was a ton of fun. But we don't get to do those types of experiments day in and day out. And Not when, nearly as much as we'd like. Yeah. And when I when I meet people who who own distilleries, run distilleries, who are just in charge of, you know, having a whole bunch of fun. I'm always a little bit envious. And so when you and I had this idea for where to take the cask of Catoctin Creek that we sampled and we reached out to Scott, he was on board immediately, which is one of the many, many things that I I love about collaborating with Scott and Becky is they're they're really up for having fun. And and part of what you'll hear in the interview with, with Becky is how do they control how much fun they're having with... Having a standard Catoctin Creek product that <laughs> yeah. that you can pick up stores across the country, around the world, you know, how, how do you balance that? And so Becky answered that. So, okay. so we'll we'll get that a little bit later. We'll, nice. we'll start. We'll start in the beginning though. So, what you and I have done, Joshua, is we have taken two casks, two thirty-gallon casks mm-hmm. of Catoctin Creek. Rye. 100% rye. 100% rye. And we have re-racked into a 59-gallon Pedro Jimenez Sherry Hogshead from Kilhoman. I love that. 
That's very exciting. <laughs> it's very <laughs> exciting. I mean, think about it. That so that sherry cask, and I know I know you want to continue on doing some explanation here, but anytime Kilhoman uses Pedro Jimenez hogsheads, it's for finishing only. And this mm. one was for finishing only. And their finishes tend to be around a year or so. So this is going to have good sherry presence. Uh, so we're going to see some really dark colors coming through uh, on the rye, but it but then it's also going to have that kick of of having held peated whiskey in there. So good sherry, good peat on top of Catoctin Creek's rye that tends to be on the sweeter floral side. So it's for me, I, I really can't wait to see how this is. I can only imagine what the flavors are going to, uh, how they're going to present themselves. I think Becky uh, puts forth some of her ideas on what she thinks is going to happen to the whiskey. Exactly. So we'll, we're going to hand this over to Becky in just a moment because there's also details that I'm purposely omitting about the Catoctin Creek casks Uh that we selected that I I want to give the floor to Becky. We will also, later in the episode, pivot to Scott, where Scott and I did a rather interesting little experiment with that Colhoman hogshead. And so we'll, we'll cover that later as well. But for the moment, given that you're sitting here postulating about what might happen to the flavors... Let's go over to Becky, talk about what was in the casks that we re-racked and talk about her expectations for this cask going forward. To start at the beginning, uh, thank you for doing this project with us. Oh no, we're super excited. Really exciting for us. We were very excited to see No Cuts Catoctin Creek. (laughs) You're the distiller? Yeah. What is it? What does that mean? How did it come about? We had done a day of working with, we were getting ready to buy some new equipment and we had been getting in the growth phase and I wanted someone to come in and just be like a a sanity check on what I've been doing for, you know, eight years at the time, right? And say, all right, are you missing any big things that you could do to improve what you're doing? Fresh eyes, right? Mm -hmm. And so I had talked to John Little at Smooth Ambler, and he had recommended they had worked with um, Larry Ebersold from formerly of Seagram's Uh LDI. The old Seagram's. Uh, Yes, yes, the old Seagram's. (laughs) He's like Seagram's, not MGP, but yes. Okay. And he he was busy, super busy guy, working with a lot of different companies. But he, you know, I said, look, all I want is like one day. Okay. One day, I just want you to come in. I want you to look through everything that I'm doing and tell me what I can do to improve or what what other things I should be doing. Okay. And so he came in and we spent the day and he's just an incredibly nice, generous um, teacher kind of guy, you know, who really was like, these are the things we do. And, you know, ultimately it came down to, there wasn't a lot that I was doing that he said was wrong. It was, oh, you could add these measurements and that would enable you to, you know, if you make sure you measure this, this, and this every day, that gives you these things to use as tools to make process improvements down the line. It's like more like, just some extra things that I could add to measurements and what have you. It was great. It was a spectacular day, but 
the one thing is he's like, you know what you you really need to do. And <laughs> and he was like, you need to get a continuous column still. <laughs> And I mean, obviously, that's what the man worked with. That's yeah. what they work with most places, yeah. really. Yeah. And, you know, he's like, the still you have, you know, how long does it take you to do that? And I'm like, well, you know, eight, nine hours. And he's like, you know, you do that much in three minutes. That's a big turnaround. It, I mean, financially, what that says yeah. is, damn, you're a fool, girl. <laughs> <laughs> now, granted... At the time, I also was like, yeah, I see what you're saying, but, you know, I feel like there is a reason to do it the way we do it because we are selecting flavors, which is not an option. Yes. And he was like, he said, you know, what, what, what we could do, you know, why don't you just do this? Just run it with no cuts. And he's like, just, and then you'll see what the kind of thing is comes that comes out of. It's like a simulation, if you will, of okay. what a continuous column still would do. Okay. Is just run it with no cuts. And were you on your, you were on your second still at this yeah, point, if this you were is, eight years yeah. in at that yep. point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so we just basically ran it with no cuts. Put okay. everything into the drum and into the barrels. Huh. And he said, you know, he said most people, you know, prefer the taste of that to you know, what they were doing before. Okay. And I don't know if I buy that personally. Sure. Uh, as far as my taste buds were, I found that I could identify it, pick it out very easily and felt that it didn't allow us the versatility to really kind of say, okay, these are the flavors we don't want to include. These are the things that we really want to emphasize in our process for our product. You could not produce the product that we produce right now Mm -hmm. with no cuts. Okay. It doesn't taste the same at all. So it's almost like it was just throwing all flavors at you at the same time and you weren't getting as much control over the process. So it would have been the kind of thing where if you did that, you wouldn't necessarily have what people would expect to taste for round stone rye. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that's why these two barrels have been sitting there <laughs> because when I taste through barrels that I'm looking to get ready to dump, it's yeah. like, okay, does this taste? It, no, it doesn't taste the same. Yep. So I'm not going to label it as roundstone rye because it's not what roundstone rye is. Which is, I think, the, the perfect moment for an independent bottler to come in. Exactly. Uh, we, that's we, why we hang on to those <laughs> right. things, right? Yeah, we, did, we did a sampling with... Um, Eddie Russell last year, and we went through the Wild Turkey Warehouse, and there was one barrel up on its end with the word rejected written across it. And we were like, Eddie, can we taste this one? Can we taste this one, please? And we tasted it, and it was phenomenal. But it but wasn't for him, their it, profile. For him, it wasn't Wild Turkey. And so to have this no-cut show up and have that not be Catoctin Creek profile, right? I also love the fact that you're willing to allow us, and I think for the first time in Catoctin Creek, to put these 230-gallon... Yeah, that's going to be awesome. Into an ex Kilhoman sherry butt. It's super cool. So, so, so my question for you is, given and, and this this might not actually work as a question, given what you're saying about the different profile on these no cuts barrels. Given what you've tasted with the no cuts, given what you've smelled and tasted with the sherry butt coming in, what would you expect 
and we're not going to hold you to this. You can <laughs> speculate wildly. <laughs> we will not do a cutback to Becky being wrong. This is, you know, this back is on like the first some day. kind of Daily Show thing yeah, where right. you're going to, you know, <laughs> yeah. I'm not see how wrong she show. was. <laughs> I, I'm just curious because you know the rye profile, even if it's slightly different yeah. with the no cuts. But I think it's going to complement it really nicely because, okay. you know, when you get that sherry, that kind of oxidization uh-huh. and, and those kind of notes that come from that nutty. It, I think that's going to complement that kind of almost a little bit more fusily kind of texture and, mm-hmm. and flavor that comes in on the rye. And I think it's going to be really neat because especially the, with, with the Kilhoman, you've got that, that sweetness underneath those kind of notes in this, and the smoke. And I think it's going to be really, really cool to see where those all wrap in with the spice of the rye, mm-hmm. you know? And that the sweetness of the sweetness of the barley and the spice of the rye and the smoke and the oxidization, I think that's going to be a really interesting kind of textured blend thing going on. I, I agreed wholeheartedly, <laughs> and that's that's why we're excited about it. We're also curious about how quickly it will happen, yeah. Because obviously, we've known Scottish rate of maturation, and right. so what we're actually going to do. Um, is pull a sample maybe every three months. The plan might change yeah. once we taste the first one. Right. But we already pulled our first full bottle sample today okay. of day one. Yep. The whiskeys. This the, is where the, we are. The two yep. barrels have met. Yep. They have, the contents of those have now met the yep. sherry butt. Yep. What was happening on day one when they just, sure. the first time yep. they met. Yep. To see this in three months will be a question of, how quickly does this accelerate or, right. or not? And honestly, in three months, you might see something because it's still fairly warm here mm-hmm. in Virginia. And in our warehouse, it should be still fairly warm. You know, I think you might even see movement between three and six months. Between six and nine, that's where you might not see a lot going on because we don't heat our warehouses Mm -hmm. and so eventually that is going to get cold enough that there's not going to be as much activity going on at least of the more obvious Mm -hmm. style i don't think that there's really wasted time as far as those things go i think you have you know there is still stuff going on it's just maybe not as perceptible to you know whatever senses you have. But then when the spring comes, then that's going to start again. So you might see six to 12 again, you're starting that. Um, but I, I, am almost thinking, you know, you're probably, once you get that full summer in there by next summer, I think uh, that's going to be really interesting because it'll be, you'll have a lot of heat again. And that's the thing. The fact that we're starting this experiment in a September yes. means the last portion of this experiment will be June to September. Right. And so we might have one final blast on the end of it. Right. That's going to make it. And and also that when you pull those samples at that point, you've got the most heat and that everything is kind of at the most, it's going to be as dark as you tend to see it, you know, because, because generally in, you know, in February, February and March, when you're pulling things, it's, it's fairly cold and it just doesn't have quite as much of that dark color and wood sugar all mm. active. This is fantastic. These yeah. are so many things for us to look so forward it'll be to fun through to the see. I mean, I'm really, co- it'll be cool to see the kind of picture of all of them standing next to each other. <laughs> exactly. And not opening the samples between now and then as yeah. well, just to le- let the bottle be full and let it sit. Yeah. That'll be hard when I look at it on my shelf <laughs> and think I really want to get into that. Um, so, so one of the things I was saying to Scott 
uh, earlier, just when I when I got here, is Josh and I are independent bottlers. We don't get to do the the level of experimentation, and we are so thankful that you're willing partners in this fun experimentation that we're doing it's here. So cool. As a distillery owner, how much are you controlling yourself between you could experiment all day long, every day of the week if you wanted to, you also have to get roundstone rye onto store shelves and for people to know that. One of the words that we hear all the time in Scotland as we go around is consistency. Are you also, is that also the C word that is important around Catoctin Creek? It is important around here. And I think that, you know, that's why when you taste, you know, I hear people all the time go, well, if it's a single barrel, how do I know it's going to taste good? You know, and to me, it's really like when we taste every single barrel, we're looking at those barrels for a family of flavor. Does it taste the way we expect it to taste for mm-hmm. this product at this proof? And then then provided that it meets that, then you go ahead and you you bottle it. Mm-hmm. If you don't, then if it doesn't taste right or it doesn't have the 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 consistency and the things that I'm looking for, then that's really where I like to do things like finishing projects mm-hmm. or private barrels. Because uh, you know, just looking at the market it has changed so much with the number of private barrel picks that stores and uh, restaurant groups and, you know, all kinds of people are wanting to do private barrel picks. So mm-hmm. that's really gone from being a relatively small portion of our business, say three or four years ago to being a pretty, I mean, I'm thinking all the time about how many barrels do I have underway? Where are they at? Do I need to get more going? You know, how do you do that and keep a level of, interest because you know one of the things that we're trying to do is do it with a sense to giving people something maybe a little unexpected Mm -hmm. so does that level of experimentation allow you to get the wiggles out but you're not too concerned that the consumer is only going towards experimental all the time they are still looking for the jumping off point. They still want to know what Roundstone Rye is to make better sense of the store pick, the restaurant pick. I think so. And, you know, to a certain extent, you could say the same thing about any of these brands, if you will. I mean, you look at the the really high-end $250 bottles from any of the big guys, you know, they're they're quite a bit different than your basic pour from those same big guys. And yet there's a cachet that kind of carries with having this other expression around that kind of puts some, you know, glamour, if you will, (laughs) to the underlying brand. I mean, you see it in craft ones as well. I mean, you've got the, the, the brands that, you know, might, might be like, say, oh, hell, you know, Garrison Brothers Cowboy Bourbon, mm-hmm. uh, 300 bucks a pop. Most people don't buy that, yeah. but they've got it. You know, it, it got their name out there and it makes them more familiar. So yes. if that does that for our standard brand, I think then it makes people more willing to try it. Well, and I like hearing that from the distiller mm-hmm. because certainly for us in Scotland, a lot of distillers that we've approached don't want there to be that jumping off point separate from their own line, from whatever they can control going to the consumer. Right. I could Uh, see that there's that some people really want that. I think being a craft brand, though, there's to 
a little more expected for you to be experimental, to be different. Good. Um, You know, oh, well, why? Because you don't have to have that same tight control over everything uh, associated with it. And I think that, you know, you look at craft beer and I think that craft spirits have that same kind of, kind of maybe a more experimental ethos in their their kind of holistic expectations of the consumers they might expect you to do something a little funkier that's good i'm glad that i'm glad a it's it's welcome on the side of the consumer and it's welcome on the side of becky who's distilling and moving from casks and adjusting cask maturation right right and you know as a small producer you know we do have to yes keep up with um, you know, yes, what our, our line is. And so the, the challenge there is how do you balance how much you're pulling from your standard line to go experiment? And so it does, yes, that is something I do worry about, not worry so much as I have to pay attention to, okay, what do I have in stock? Mm-hmm. What kinds of things do I have in stock? And when can I pull in some more, you know, those kind of things. It you have to pace yourself because otherwise you're going to take a big stock of stuff out, and you might need that product to to make new product for outlying, you know, demand. I hear you. I hear you. One of the things that that we encounter, and I'm glad you've kind of circled back to this. Almost every taste in Joshua and I lead. People ask us, when will we see the next? Catoctin Creek from Single Cast Nation. Obviously, here we're we're here today. We're working on this very special project, and it will be coming. <laughs> One of the things we hear from those same people is that two-year-old you released was so amazing. <laughs> it was a crazy good barrel, <laughs> and it's really only been in subsequent conversations with Scott and invariably off wax, so not recorded, that I've better understood what it was we released. And it was distilled tales and only tales mm-hmm. that was being distilled. And so Scott has started to talk to me about how your process has changed here. Your mm-hmm. tales, you know, on the end used to be much longer. Flavors were different. As the distiller of that, who has, who has you know, honed her craft, can you talk a little bit to what you've seen different, done different, experienced differently? Yes. Well, that there's there's some things there. One of the reasons the tails were longer is that um, we also had less time in the barrel at that. Okay. That was like year one or year two that we put them in, and um, and in year one or year two we were a- aging months. Oh, okay. Okay. So you wanted. So it More had to be really tales. clean ah, because okay. it was really only getting a few months of age on it. I mean, if you look at some of those old barrels that or bottles that Scott, you know, can see every now and then, it's like three months old, two months yes, old. Yes, yes. Right. So at that point, we wanted it to be really clean, really delicate flavor because you're just getting a little bit of wood. You weren't okay. getting nearly a full season, a, a full set of seasons sure, of wood sure. that we, you know, we've moved toward getting closer to two years old. And that means that it's, you know, we're getting more time. So that's more conversion of those flavors that are a little fusily to flavors that are otherwise more interesting. Okay. And so it was a, it was really a kind of a different distillation process in that 
as we started to get more time and get ahead of the demand curve, then we could start to extend it and then start uh, moving those things okay. and selecting the way that we want the flavor to be. Okay. So has Tails then got a bit of a bad rap? I've always oh, thought yeah. of Tails I mean, as kind of the, the throwaway end or or even a collection for a, a second distillation. And and they can be, okay. but yeah, it sure. depends on sure. what you're going to do. Interesting. Every single Kentucky style beer continuous still doesn't have tails. So there aren't tails. Yeah. So tails are part of their distillate. Yes. Yes. And so the bad rap, they they would say, no, that adds complexity and whatever. But they're doing different things with their maturation as well. Okay. So their maturation is done slightly different. They've got bigger, generally longer periods of time much longer periods of time and so there's more time for those fusily flavors to turn into interesting flavors to turn you know to do mellow if you will sure right and so the fact that they don't have to cut tails to get what they're looking for because they have more capacity for warehousing and hell money Yes. To warehouse because you know as an independent bottler that what it is to be putting money into a place. Yes. <laughs> so turn my hair gray. Yes, exactly. And that's the same thing for us is we don't okay. have the money to put. So we have to be more creative in the way we do that. And so gotcha. we feel that one way to, to do that is a is is a um, a more refined process where we do cut tails and separate those out. And f- that gives the round stone its particular flavor. Mm-hmm. And then we go ahead and, you know, we've kind of decided really after almost that experiment, we really kind of said, you know, I think we're going to hitch ourselves to being a pot style batch okay. distillation company. That's where we're going to be. We're not necessarily going to do maybe the financially savvy thing and go with the big beer still. Yes. Because lots of other people are doing that. And so you kind of have to decide what your identity is going to be. And our identity is rye and our identity is a batch style distillation. Perfect. 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 Okay. And so so now you've got such a, a small kind of tails cut on the end mm-hmm. that we'll probably never see another complete run of, of tails. No. Uh, no. So so even those who loved that two-year-old that we released first, not only is it not coming back with Single Cast Nation, it's not even a part of the process at Catoctin Creek Distilling no. Company. No, well, and, and honestly, that, that, that two-year-old barrel was sitting in our distillery when we had, I mean shoot probably for three or four months of the year it was like 95 plus degrees in that (laughs) space and that barrel sat in there (laughs) so i mean it really was i mean even if i put it out in our warehouse that warehouse doesn't get that hot for that long yeah and so you know it would be really difficult to kind of mimic that even again but but i i almost love this even more now because it 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 had a sense of time and place to it that, as we've always said as, as independents, that's all we're trying to capture. We were just in, in Maltstock the other weekend, and so many people are talking about 
how do you know when a cask is ready? And, and the consensus was, you don't. You know when it's gone past its best. Uh, that that's it's almost like what's the expression? You know, you don't know when love begins, but you know when it ends, <laughs> right? Yeah. I, I feel like it's almost the same way with the cask of oh, this is really good. Imagine this in another six months or a year or three years. No, you don't know nothing. You don't know, you don't anything, know anything about the future, about the future. right? Exactly. And, and so we're always saying if if we sample a cask and we love it in that moment, we bottle it, and it represents the time, the moment that brought it to there. Right. That's exactly what you're describing with this two-year-old that was our first collaboration. Right. That's even right. It was kind of like lightning in a bottle, if you will. There you don't you know. Go. You could say, you could say that, oh, if you'd have aged that 10 more years, right. but you know what? It could have been crap. <laughs> You know, you're not wrong. It could have been, you know, it was so lovely. (laughs) And I think that's the thing is you have to recognize when something's lovely and say, I'm not going to, you know, always be saying, when can it be better? Because maybe it isn't. Maybe this is it. No, exactly. So, so this is the longest you have been stopped today. I, I've just watched you run around. And this I'm distillery twitching. You were North telling stuff. me stop twitching. I'm like, yes. Oh, sorry. Now, if you're Didn't someone picking their it. nails on the cask uh, on the on the podcast, it's like all my hands Becky. are. <laughs> it's like my hands are just covered with uh, char, and they're all dry. And yeah, I'm, I'm not a hand model. <laughs> You've put in a day's work by 8 a.m. It's impressive. So, <laughs> Gotta start early. Gets hot. <laughs> so I'll let you get out of here on this. I'll let you go back to running around the <laughs> distillery. Well, what's the thing that you're doing at Catoctin Creek currently that's got you most excited? You know, what? one of the things we started this year specifically is the, the our Rabble Rouser release um, is... This year is the uh, well. Last year we did um, was the first year we did in fifty three gallon barrels for the Rabble Rouser release. And one of the things that we in, instituted this year is that we have now changed that annual production to being aged in entirely Virginia oak barrels. Mm, okay, fifty three gallon Virginia oak barrels. So and the last time we spoke in the podcast, you were just sampling yeah, the, the Virginia but, but Oak. But the Virginia Oak is really lovely and it's got some interesting different flavors. And, you know, I think that there's that wasn't really an option for a long time for us to get Virginia Oak as part of our cooperage. But we've started working with a cooperage that can do that. And mm. so, you know, we kind of want to really, again, talk about place mm-hmm. and bring place into it, not only in the grains that we use, and the water and the climate, but also why not the wood? Yeah. When you have the opportunity, I think that that gives still more breadth and depth to the category that we call rye. You know, you don't hear quite nearly as much as when we started, well, that doesn't taste like rye uh-huh. because now people are recognizing that rye can be varied and different and it can vary by who makes it even or where it's made. And we just want to kind of double down on this is Virginia rye. This is what Virginia rye tastes like and kind of really explore that in kind of the most profound way that we can do. Well, I will continue to look out for that in the incoming Roundstone <laughs> Rye and, and see what it looks like. Absolutely. Uh, but on, on behalf of Joshua and myself, thanks a million. You guys no, have such an open thank you guys. We have a with blast us. with you guys. It's amazing. Uh, I'm really excited to see where this project goes and we'll come back and pay attention to your words. We're not going to, you know, give you a hard time, throw you <laughs> under the bus. If anything you said doesn't happen, we're just as excited to explore it. I think as it's going to be a lot of fun. 
Brilliant. Thanks, Thanks a million, Becky. No, thank you. Cheers. Bye. Absolutely fascinating listening to Becky. First of all, talk about what expectations she has mm-hmm. for this re-racked hogshead. But also interesting listening to her show what it means to own a distillery and represent a brand and to remain true to your brand while at the same time having that urge to experiment and play around and show other sides of your distillery and to then open their doors to us when we say, what would you think about us putting Catoctin Creek in an ex Colhoman PX cask? And then saying, brilliant, let's, <laughs> let's press on. <laughs> well, I mean, if you think about it potentially from, from her perspective or Scott's perspective, we get to do the experimentation for them. <laughs> right? I mean, this this is, yes, it's their whiskey, but the brand is Single Cast Nation's, Single Cast Nation's Catoctin Creek. So if it fails, well, they're like, well, you know, th- those guys are the ones that brought us the cask. We had nothing to do with that. <laughs> but if it's successful, then, you know, maybe they'll look to do something like that in the future. Like, I think this is... One of the things that that you and I, when working with various distilleries, always try to position our relationship and how and how distilleries should work with us is use us as a marketing arm. Use us as yeah. as a way to show your brand through our lens. And and some distilleries see it and and go with it, like Catoctin Creek. But I think it's also striking that. One of the concerns you hear coming from the Scotch whiskey industry and why some of the bigger brands don't mm-hmm. sell to independents is because they're worried about their brand being shown in a different light. They don't want there to be experimentation under their name. Mm-hmm. And so I love the fact that that Scott and Becky, with their hands on the reins, are able to say, yeah, let's see what happens. Let's see if it works. Let's see if it if it doesn't work. The good news is both we and they think this is going to work. Well, you're starting off with great spirit. Always and key. Then, right? And you're putting it into a cask that previously held great spirit and still has a lot of life to it. I, I think it's going to be beautiful. So speaking of that cask having so much life still in it, <laughs> yes, there was a an interesting conversation that Scott and I started having off air, uh, mm-hmm. you know, before I'd even pulled out the recording equipment, and I said, Scott, 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 pause. I want this on wax, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so I pulled out the recording equipment, got it set up. We hit rewind on Scott Harris. And he started talking to me about Boise. How about? (laughs) And here's the best part of it. It's spelled exactly like Boise. And I'm very, very familiar with Boise, Idaho. Ah, (laughs) so Boise. Boise. So I I heard Blase. I heard (laughs) Isle of Rosse. (laughs) Blase. So, so what's boise? I'm not going to say another word, Joshua. I am going to give the floor to Scott Harris and the little experiment that he and I conducted. Then, 
Yeah. Because we're not going to break out of this. We'll then go into talking about, it's an update on tariffs. Scott is fighting tooth and nail uh, on the tariffs that are affecting American producers, uh, American whiskies, and we'll go into that. And then we'll ask him the same question that we asked Becky. What's something about Catoctin Creek that's really exciting you right now? Mm. And so let's go in for a nice portion of time with Scott here and really enjoy the interview. Ooh, I just want to cuddle up with a little, like a little bowl of ice cream or something, and get some nice tea and just hang out and listen. We're in the fall, Joshua. Pull up your blanket and enjoy this. I will pull it up. You and I are sitting here. We're tasting the dregs from our Cahoman sherry butt at Catoctin Creek Distilling Company. That's right. And and you said here's something interesting. So we got this sherry butt from you in uh, September. September 1st or thereabouts. And what we uh, first were wondering was, was it dried out? How long had it been empty, right? Mm -hmm. Because obviously we don't want to put anything into it. Do we need to steam it beforehand? Mm -hmm. Um, And and as it turns out, um, investigating it, there was almost a full bottle of whiskey still in there, the dregs of the barrel. And so it was quite moist. So of course I poured that into a bucket and then poured (laughs) that into a bottle and uh, the color on this is incredible. It's 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 like coffee. It, it absolutely is. It's completely opaque. You cannot. You hold it up to the light, and you cannot see through it. And you've you've got it right next to a window where the sun is shining brightly through the window, and you cannot see through the right. liquid. Right. It's that dark. Now, um, the first thing I did, of course, was uh, give it a nose. Coffee down, whiskey up. It's funny. So Joshua and I, on a, on a long ago episode of the podcast, actually tasted caramel color, mm. and when it came to us. It was about this dark. Yeah, to me that looks like uh, Kahlua in the in the mm, glass. Not the viscosity and the syrupiness of it, mm-hmm. but exactly the color. Oh yeah, H- having just returned from the Netherlands, this nose would have killed in the Netherlands. Yeah, smoke and peat oh, and all yeah. the good Rich. stuff in there. Oh. Yeah. So don't taste it just yet. Okay, dark chocolate. The uh, fruit flies like it as well. They do. All right, so go ahead and give it a give it a tiny sip. Okay. The texture is fantastic. Mm -hmm. Tannic as hell. To the back of the palate, it's not there to the front. There there is definitely the sweetness there, a little bit of the sherry. But But it's like sucking on a tea bag in the back of the throat, right? Like (laughs) when you told me you were taking me in the back today, Scott, (laughs) I didn't think you'd be teabagging me. So sorry, (laughs) that analogy I forgot. (laughs) But it, it is it is tannic as hell, right? And so what struck me about this was, you know, something almost completely foreign to whiskey production. Mm. Um, well, completely foreign, I should say, but completely familiar to the people in Cognac is the concept of Boise. Mm. So Boise, spelled like Boise, um, is um, apparently uh, in Cognac. There's so much Cognac being produced, and most of the barrels used in Cognac production are... 30, 40, 50, 100 years old, right? They're completely spent. They're, mm-hmm. they're imparting no color, no wood into the spirit. They're simply a vessel yeah. for oxidization and breakdown over time, right? Mm-hmm. And so what the French have done is they every French uh, cognac distillery has uh, uh, at least one cask of what they call boise. And what boise is, is it's a purpose-made mixture of low-proof brandy, water, and charcoal. Oh. And so they are making a tea uh, of of caramel, right? It's not uh, caramel coloring. Mm-hmm. They make this boise. And in fact, what one brandy maker told us was that when you start a new brandy distillery 
in France, you know, this would have been the hundreds of years ago. The first thing you do is start making your boise. Okay. Before you put anything away, you start making your boise because you age it just like you age everything else, and it continues to age, and it's kind of like a mole or something. You keep adding to okay. it and adding or to a it. A sourdough time. starter exactly. type of thing. You know, okay. it's just constantly this living thing. Anyway, hmm. so so we were visiting uh, Dan Farber at Osocalis in California, right? And he has boise, and he took out some some twenty year old brandy from his casks, and it was. It was this color. It was the Uh color of pale straw, Uh okay? 20 years old, but it's a neutral cask, Uh right? And so it tasted quite lovely, but it tasted like, you know, like a uh, eau de vie, Mm -hmm. right? And he takes a a thing of his boise like this. He took one teaspoon of it and just added it to the glass we were drinking. And instantly, you've got a finished, beautiful, rich, caramely, (laughs) golden color cognac. (laughs) Right in wow. his case, a brandy, um, and so when I when I saw this Kichloman, I was like, this to me is like Boise. It has uh-huh. the same tannins. It's concentrated. It's been sitting in that barrel and just building up wood, wood, wood. Fascinating. Right? And so what my experiment is is I, I wanted to add it to new make. Oh yes. So here I've we got, are now we're cooking. I've got some Catoctin Creek new make right, and this is Mosby Spirit. We don't make it anymore, but it is essentially a 100% rye new make. Fairly neutral, but not completely neutral. So that, you know, if you want to do this properly, maybe you should have something completely neutral. Mm-hmm. I don't care about that. <laughs> so, um, and I, our strength on the new make? That is uh, at, at bottle proof. So that would be 40% okay. um, ABV. Cool, cool. All right. So um, I put in about 50 milliliters here. And I'm just going to dribble in some of this Kechloman um, Dregs Boise. So look at that color. That's a beautiful scotch. The um, the color now is is akin to maple syrup, maybe a shade lighter. Wow, and um, almost like an amber quality to it, especially mm-hmm. with the light shining through it. With no no unnatural caramel coloring, right? Completely Correct. just from the barrel. Oh, it's warm. It's rich. Mm. I think it should dilute out the tannins quite a lot now, and become quite a nice. You know, you might in a blind tasting think it's just Kilhoman now. Mm. Again, it's that nice mouth feel. I actually think some of the peat has gone away on it. The rye is there. The rye's present, but then it's got this kind of warmer enveloping, maybe it's the power of suggestion, but almost a maple syrup sweetness to it. This actually tastes to me like the maple syrup barrel Catoctin Creek really? that you released at the distillery. I'm going to add just a bit more. Let's mm. see if I can bring back the phenols. Mm. The phenols are in the smell. For okay. Sure. Oh, You're right. The sweetness of that rye is just unmaskable. Right. Yeah. I'm almost getting an aniseed-like quality building to the very back of the palate. I think all that sweetness and baking spice is coming from the rye. Oh, you definitely with that second edition got a little bit more of the peat quality. Mm. Yeah, the, the phenols are back. Hmm. Isn't that neat? Yeah. Just a fun little experiment to try. Mm. Oh, you could you could drink that. All weekend long. Absolutely. That is a perfectly presentable whiskey now. Mm-hmm. And just a little bit of the tannins are there at the back of the right. palate. Mm. Yeah, this gets me really excited for putting the the Catoctin Creek right. into the sherry butt. Because that's essentially what we're going to be exactly, doing, right? Exactly, <laughs> yeah. This is a little peek <laughs> into the future. I'm exactly. very happy about that. For me, it was just a really neat experiment because it, it is... 
as I said, Boise is completely foreign and in fact illegal in America for whiskey production, okay. probably in Scotland too. Um, but the, you know, and, and some of the whiskey nerds, the real sort of purists will scoff at the, the cognac uh, tradition of mm-hmm. doing this, right? Mm-hmm. And saying, well, it would never be allowed in, in whiskey. But, you know, I sort of turn that around and say, well, if somebody's been doing it for over 100 years, how can you say it's not traditional? <laughs> <laughs> of course it's traditional. Um, and so, the, you know, this is the way of, of, you know, there's a lot of cognac on the market and, and they've got to get, you know, the wood flavor into it. And mm. that's how they do it and I, have been doing it forever. I tell you, just while you were, you know, talking away there, I was taking just another little sip and another little sip with the amount of oil in it. It builds on the palate so beautifully that I'm now sitting with almost red berry juicy notes mm. that weren't there on the first or the second sip, came in on the third, the fourth. Yeah. You've really calmed down what came out of the empty Kilhoman butt. That's really fantastic. That's really neat stuff. I, I Anyway, I just super enjoyed uh, finding that little treasure inside yeah, the barrel. Yeah, that's brilliant. Cheers, yeah. man. And thanks for sharing. I look forward to, to definitely doing that with Joshua. Uh, so while we got the recording equipment out, I wanted to ask you today, uh, I just saw you the other week on CNBC. Your, mm. you know, last time I was here and sat down with you and Becky, we talked about the tariffs and what that looked like for Catoctin Creek. Uh, you've done a really good job of championing it. I've got two questions for you. Number one, what are you currently seeing? What's, what did the tariff situation look like for you with Catoctin Creek right now? And then secondarily, one of the things we keep seeing and hearing in the sports world is stick to sports. Don't get political. <laughs> Don't talk about oppression. Don't take a knee. With you, with this campaign, because I see you in so many places, really fighting the cause, are you getting any blowback? Are you getting any stick to whiskey? Uh, a little bit. Um, so to answer the second question first, um, I would I would emphasize that I'm not being political. You know, I'm simply trying to help my business, right? I have a business that employs 20 people. That means there's 80 humans that are eating dinner every night because of what we're doing in our business. Um, plus then all the supply chain, we have farmers that we employ locally, bottle makers from Pennsylvania, Western Pennsylvania. So, you know, these are American jobs and they're important. And um, being free trade, you know, never used to be a political issue until today when everything's a political mm-hmm. issue. Exactly. Right. And so I, 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 I reject that politics. I'm trying to help my business, trying to help other businesses like mine. These are good, small American company jobs. And up until very recently, everybody was for that. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, it is somewhat uh, amusing to me that uh, depending on which venue I go on to. So I've been on CNBC, I've been on Fox Business, I've been on MSNBC, whichever venue I go on to, they always assume I am pro that venue. Uh-huh. Right. <laughs> and so I'll have people from the left lambasting me. Somehow they assume who I voted for and say, well, you got what you voted for, F you. Mm-hmm. Right. People on the right will assume I'm a whining liberal and, well, just stick it out. It's for the good of the country, you know, that kind of thing. And I, I reject both arguments. Mm-hmm. You know, I am a moderate, independent businessman trying to run a business, and these kinds of roadblocks are harming our business. So the status of the um, current thing is unfortunately exactly where it was a year ago when these things first started. Um, all European business is at a trickle. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. We are taking it on the chin, paying the tariffs to keep our prices at the competitive level they need to be at in Europe, which means we're losing great deals of money on it. Why are we doing that? That's a foolish thing to do, some would say. We're trying to maintain that market share so that when these tariffs come away, that we are still there and have the channels ready and it can then grow as it was growing before the tariffs came into being. Um, I would say the other complicating factor in this, apart from Europe, is Brexit. Mm -hmm. I was going to ask you that as a follow-up. And the UK is a hot mess, as we say in the South. And as um, you rightly say in the South about the yeah, United Kingdom it, right it, now, sadly it is. And uh, I've never seen so much drama from the parliament as I've seen in the past week or two. Yep. Um, the, uh, and, and we have made zero progress after three years of attempts to get into the UK. And I honestly think at this point today, everybody is just hunkered down waiting for Brexit to resolve itself before they make any kind of long-term contracts. So I think all of the would be, British uh, distributors that we've talked to who have, you know, taken very nicely to the product mm-hmm. are absolutely not planning anything until Brexit is resolved. Yep. I've heard some of them are even considering moving to Europe, mm-hmm. you know, so, so Brexit is its own mess, but um, certainly our administration presently is hurting us with these tariffs and they're hurting farmers and they're hurting manufacturing businesses. And, and I continue to beat the tr- um, drum that says that we need to remove them mm-hmm. immediately I do not think that's going to happen until we see an administration change. I just don't think it's going to happen. So for me, being based in the United States, living here with my family, I hear and and a lot of friends and and whiskey lovers hear about the tariffs on the goods coming in from China. Now, when you and I sit here and we talk about Catalton Creek exports and the tariffs that you're dealing with, you're dealing with them going into Europe that's right. And going into, are you in China, Asia? No, we're not in China, so okay. we're not dealing with that. Okay. Uh, although we do buy equipment, and equipment, unless you are buying something very specific, some part of it has come from China. Mm-hmm. So that affects equipment prices. And that's going to hit us, um, all of us Americans, you know, from washing machines to television sets to toasters, you know, soon. Um, but the largest impact for us is the tariffs going to Europe. And those tariffs were imposed by the Europeans in retaliation for the Americans putting all the tariffs on everything um, from Europe. So it's a tit for tat thing, right? Nobody wins in a trade war. Everybody's a victim. And and we are certainly as well. Um, The Europeans would remove the tariffs tomorrow if the administration in America removed their tariffs. So, um, you know, in this case, there are all this news about who's paying for the tariffs, right? in this case, we're paying for the European tariffs because we want to remain competitive. Okay. So we, Catoctin Creek, are writing that check for the goods that we ship to Europe so that the Europeans don't because we want to have competitive shelf price. Otherwise, our product in Europe would be 90, 100 euros per bottle, and that prices it out of the competition, yeah. which is exactly what tariffs are designed to do, <laughs> right? Yeah, It makes it non-competitive. And what worries me is that we're missing out on market share right now from that, but we're also starting to lose mind share, right? So we're right mm-hmm. in the middle of this cocktail renaissance in Europe and everything was just booming and growing and, you know, a couple of years behind what's happening here in the U.S., but with all the energy and, and all of that passion mm-hmm. and then boom, these tariffs come in, right? And so uh, there are very good whiskeys now being made in Europe, in India, in Japan, in Ireland, in mm-hmm. Scotland that are not subject to these tariffs 
and those are starting to replace Americans in the glass. So I'm talking even things like rye whiskey from the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's single malts coming from Denmark. There are whiskeys in Germany that are made from corn and aged in a barrel, which for all practical purposes could be called bourbon, but can't be called bourbon. But they don't care. They're going to get their corn whiskey. They're going to make a recipe that calls for bourbon, and it's going to be just fine. So that is a problem that we are losing those kinds of opportunities right now. And I fear, just like the soybeans in China, you know, the, the China was the largest buyer of soybeans from America, right? And now they're buying it from Russia, mm-hmm. okay? And if that soybean crop from Russia is good enough and cheap enough, they may never come back. Correct. Ever. Correct. And if the same thing happens with whiskey, we've really shot ourselves in the foot. Uh, so, so it seems like you've, you've got a battle on your hands, obviously. But it almost it also seems like if the consumer doesn't see the effect tariffs are having, the consumer may very well think, oh, this is all just a storm in a teacup. I would almost want the Catoctin Creek loving consumers of Europe to say, holy shit, our bottles that we love are now 90 to 100 euros. What the fuck is yeah, happening yeah. out here? And maybe shake a tree so a politician would listen or, or communicate that message to another politician overseas who might listen. And I worry that we may be seeing, seeing the same thing over here where we do have that legitimate question, who's paying for tariffs? Right. And if an administration tells you, oh, China's paying these tariffs, you're, you're not seeing these. Right. The consumers aren't seeing them. Which is not true, by the way. Right. And then, and then we say, but consumers are paying for it. I would love for it, and and yes, it, it would really screw with a lot of business. But I would love for the consumer to get you know that big wet mackerel slap in the face of, oh, this this is serious. Sadly, I am seeing things going sa- north. Sadly, I think that has that's a plan with a lot of casualties, right? So that basically says that then a company their sales in a, in a market go to zero, mm-hmm. right? And there mm-hmm. and that company could go out of business because mm-hmm. of that. Mm-hmm. Um, that. The consumers, um, this is the problem with tariffs, is the consumers will switch to a cheaper product that's of similar value, right? It may not be the same product. They may be passionately drinking Virginia rye and they can't get it. So they switch to, you know, uh, a Dutch rye or, or, you know, which of course is, I've had some Dutch rye that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. But, you know, my point is that they may switch to something that's not even as good. And that's a good enough for mm-hmm, them. Absolutely. And that's the problem is that there is no mackerel slap in the face. If I was making a product that everybody wanted and there was no other real competition for it, then I think you have a really good argument because then you really put the pinch on on those customers. Um, I think the Europeans, of course, you know, they put the tariffs on whiskey on purpose, right? Because they're coming from Kentucky mostly, mostly. Mm-hmm. And that's a very conservative area and they have a direct ear to the president. And, um, and sadly, I think, uh, it hasn't mattered. Okay. It hasn't mattered. And that's what I was kind of leading with, with my asking you if you're being told to stick to whiskey, because when I speak to distillers in Kentucky, they will talk off the record about what they're seeing and what's affecting business, but they're very aware of the people who live in Kentucky, who live around them in voting patterns, and they don't want to lead the campaign, wage the type of, of war that you're waging. And so I wondered if you've got people behind you saying like, 
great job saying the things we can't say, but on the flip side, people saying, come on, Scott, let's just, let's just be patient here. Let's wait until this war is won. Yeah. If you, if you look at my, um, interviews, every single one of them I've ever done, um, and they're all on my website, um, you'll see, I am absolutely threading the needle, uh, in staying nonpartisan in this issue. This is not a partisan issue. This is a free trade issue. Mm -hmm. Right. And I, I am disappointed in my industry brethren who don't have the courage to stand up and fight for our industry. Mm -hmm. So, um, this, this kind of lack of courage is what's gotten us to this point in the first place is that we've ceded all the power in these decisions to a person or two in this administration. And I reject that. I, I do not cede that power. Power to you. Yeah. yeah. Fight, fight the good, speak truth to power. It might be futile, but I'm going to fight it till the end. <laughs> so, uh, so, so let's get out of here on two things then. Uh, number one, we were told the messaging when this started was that trade wars are really easy to win and they don't last long. Where do you see the trade war going? And, and you mentioned it earlier. Is it just ultimately on a different administration? Or do you, because we've still got two years at this point, you don't see sense prevailing? January 2021. You think that's, so you're, so you're now, uh, we've had military analogies all the way through this. So you're hunkering down for yep. two years of protecting your company yep. and then relaunching your European expansion plans. Right, right. And uh, I, the analogy I, I use in, you know, most often with this since I'm a swimmer is treading water, right? Mm -hmm. So we're still mm -hmm. afloat. We're still powering ourselves here, but we're not going anywhere. And uh, and hoping to, you know, you know, finish the sprint out at the end. So... I honestly, I have very little reason for optimism um, that it's going to be resolved in this administration. There's no evidence of it. Um, the uh, all of the you know we've talked with people in the Commerce Department, and every single person I've talked to has said that they're going to iron out a deal with China first. That the Chinese uh, deal, the European negotiators and the American negotiators are waiting for the China deal to be resolved because it's a bigger issue, and then they'll fall into place. Right? Okay. And in, since they've said that, right, so that's not very optimistic to begin with. Since they've said that, the whole relationship with China is going down the toilet fast. Uh -huh. And we've started threatening further tariffs on French wine and things like that, which is just going to exacerbate that problem. So, you know, there is no reason right now for optimism in any front. Things can turn on a dime. Sometimes these things, you know, the clouds part and things settle themselves, but I don't see it. Not, okay. not, not based on the way this has gone so far. Well, keep, keep shouting loudly, even if you're shouting into the void and, and we're certainly echoing you wherever we can. I, I um, will say in all fairness, though, 90% of the feedback I get through social media when I do one of these um, tariff discussions has been overwhelmingly positive. 90% of the people are like, you know what, we're going to go out and buy another bottle of your stuff just to support you. Thanks for saying what you said. <laughs> so I, I got to give thanks for that. You know, the, the, the negative stuff sticks in your mind, but it, it's important to remember 90% of the people out there are, are wanting you know, what's best for the world. Well, I, I wasn't planning on telling you this on the air, but you've just given me the perfect seg. So, um, so I was at the, the local liquor store. Uh, you and I both live in Virginia. And I was in the store. I'd stepped in to get some gin because I was doing a weekend of cocktails with some friends. And I was just going in to buy Seagram's. It's a 
15, $20 bottle, mm-hmm. mix it up, get it down you. Everybody right. loves the cocktail. And when I was in there, I looked across and there was the Catoctin Creek watershed gin. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, fuck. I know Scott and Becky. I love Scott and Becky. <laughs> They're doing amazing work for the people who work for them. They're supporting the people who work for them. And I think it was a 35 or $40 yeah. bottle of gin. And I said, that's a $20 difference that if I can put that $20 towards Catoctin Creek, I've done something better this day. Not that you're a charity, you're a hardworking business supporting people. And I walked out the store that day with a watershed gin. Wonderful. Thank you so, so much. It really does mean a lot. Every bottle sold is 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 a little boost of confidence. I, I, absolutely. And I think if if you're going to speak honestly and we're going to support each other, I should be walking out of there with watershed gin. And I apologize because many times I have walked out of there with a Seagram. So, mm. um, but no more, no more. <laughs> um, I think you'll find it's quite a lovely gin too. So I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And it and it makes even better cocktails yeah. uh, than the Seagrams that I was going to buy. So so given that we're positive fellas, uh, let's get out of here on this final part. What's what's the thing that's got you still excited? What you, Do you still jump out of bed in the morning and come to Catoctin Creek to do? Honestly, you know what is exciting is um, we're, we're heading into OND on October, November, December, big mm-hmm. time for spirits companies. Um, so there's a lot of excitement coming, you know, in the future here. Um, we've spent about a year now um, with a bunch of new distributors that we have been working with across the country. And we're starting to see some of those seeds that we planted really start to sprout and, and take root. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really neat to see. Um, uh, we, uh, you know, some notable, notable um, accomplishments, you know, we, we um got a private barrel selection uh, from Fred Minnick um, for a Kentucky market um, that he got into the Kroger's in Kentucky. Um, So that's really exciting. You know, he's obviously a voice that people listen to and respect. So that was quite nice. Um, Our private cask sales of, you know, some of our oddball whiskeys that we have, Mm -hmm. uh, including things we offer into uh, single cask nation have been growing quite nicely. Um, and, uh, that, that particular segment of the whiskey market, it seems to be very popular right now. And so we're really enjoying, enjoying that as well. Well, as I've said earlier in, in today's podcast, uh, and we'll, Josh and I will say many times going forward, virtually every single tasting that we do of single cast nation, we get asked when is the next Catoctin Creek mm. selection coming? This is why I've been here today. This is why we've done the work that we've done here today. And we're really excited to to watch where this cask goes. Um, And until next time, my friend, it's always been brilliant to see you. Yeah, this will actually be the first, uh, just before we close out here, this will be the first. Put a pin in it. This will be the first cask that we've done um, in in all the different cask experiments that we have both peat in it and um, that's in a sherry butt. So we've never done a sherry cask before. Uh, so those two elements into a Catoctin rye sound really interesting to me. I'm really excited to taste this. Brilliant. Brilliant. Thank you, sir. My pleasure. Cheers. Cheers. So as you can hear from Scott in that interview, the remains that were in that cask were so dark and so chewy and so woody mm. that mm, that Catoctin Creek rye is going to get so comfortable in that cask. Yeah, yeah. And you and I have decided, and again, Scott and Becky are right on board with us, we're, we pulled a sample, a full bottle sample, 
on the day we re-racked. So we're calling that day one of this new single cask's life. Mm-hmm. We're going to pull a sample at three months, six months, nine months, and 12 months. And we're going to look closely, and we'll do an episode on this. We, we can easily discuss it with Scott and Becky as well. We're going to look closely at what has happened mm-hmm. over this one year. And, you know, we just heard Becky say it earlier in this interview, but she talks about what the seasons will do to the cask. Yeah. And yep. what will the, the warmer weather do as it's pulling the liquid out of the wood or as it's pulling it through the oak pores? Meanwhile, what will the colder season do as the whiskey sits there kind of huddled together? Get all those <laughs> molecules getting to know one another, uh-huh. yeah. right? It's, it's going to be an absolutely fascinating year and it's going to be so wonderful for you and I getting such an up-close look at cask maturation over the course mm-hmm. of 12 months. Mm-hmm. It's, it's so interesting hearing you talk about three months, six months, nine months, 12 months, and you say, oof, a whole year? Mm-hmm. That is such a small amount of time. It is going to fly by, but I like the idea of taste, you know, having these little signposts along the way. How is it turning out? How is the sherry starting to present itself? How is the peat presenting itself with that rye? Is it is it increasing in intensity, you know, from three months to six months? Does it relax a little bit? It'll be so interesting to just taste that evolution. And I'm, I'm not doing the best thing for a podcast, but as you were saying all of those words, I was nodding my head vigorously in agreement with you <laughs> that, that, that that's exactly what I'm excited to see. And, mm. and really, I, I was at a bottle share event the other night with great people tasting some really, really fun whiskeys. And I got to talking about the Westland Inferno release. <laughs> right? Yeah, and uh-huh. and showing a photo of that cask that 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 we took when we were at the warehouse four years in Tabasco cask exactly yeah and so in talking to Westland and, and really what I was telling these people that I was at the tasting with the other night is when we were discussing with Westland they were saying from three weeks to three months the Tabasco influence increased on a weekly basis. Mm. And then by the time it hit three months, they found it started to plateau. We tasted a cast sample at 18 months. Correct. And they said, that's so similar to what we had at three months. When they then made the April Fool's release at four years, we were able to say, yeah, that four years is kind of close to the 18 months that it we sampled. It didn't change much, yeah. <laughs> and so imagine having the opportunity to taste that cask from day one to week one, week two, week three, where you start really sensing the Tabasco, then being on that climbing roller coaster from mm. three weeks to three months saying, yeah. oh gosh, where, where will this end? What is going to happen here? <laughs> and then having it plateau yeah. at three months and it pretty much remaining static for the next, you know, almost four years. Yeah. 
And and so that's what we we get to do this. We get to have that kind of close up look at this this single cask of Catoctin Creek. Yeah, a rare opportunity for sure, but an exciting one. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I, I'm really excited. They only had two casks of no cuts on on site, and they were okay selling both to us. Yeah, cool. I, I love the fact that we own those. Mama, look, there's a carriage on the horizon. Oh, oh where, dear child? There, fluttering down the road, darting in and out of the cart. Oh, oh, why that must be the Colonel, Colonel Angus. Thanks again to. Uh, both Becky and Scott Harris for their time. I wish I could have been there with you. My Tuesday after malt stock was me sort of nursing my liver and and trying to acclimatize to the six-hour time difference. Uh, I, I, I did make it. I survived, which was good. It's so precious. But we did... You did something. Oh, I always you, worry when you go from we to you. That this, <laughs> yeah, it never goes the other way. So let's see where this goes. Well, you did something probably better said. You didn't do something <laughs> that we have been doing probably for the past two and a half years. And you went to them, you spoke with both of them individually and didn't ask either of them a misconception. Rather, you ask them what they are most excited about, which, you know, every, everybody had heard. And you and I, just before we started recording, kind of said, you know, we've been doing this misconceptions for a while and we've hit a point where we're getting repeats. And is it time to maybe mothball the misconceptions portion of the podcast and and switch it up into something that I think maybe has a bit of a more positive connotation to that. And that's what is exciting you the most. So let's, let's see how that goes. If it's a success, then I tip my hat to you. And if it isn't, then I get to laugh at you and we get to come up with another final question to ask people. Well, I also think we can continue to ask the misconception question Mm -hmm. and see just organically who offers something we haven't heard before. And in those Mm. instances, boom, we can pop that on at the end of the episode. And in the instances where somebody wants to say, yeah, age is really the thing we grapple with. You know, when, when we just interviewed David Cover from Penderin, he was able to offer up a misconception about pouring Welsh whiskey as he goes around the world. Like, Mm. we're not asking everybody we speak to a misconception about Welsh Welsh whiskey. So he had a pretty blank canvas to work from there. True. But I do think when we speak to American craft producers, what's one of the things that almost all of them bring up? Age. Age. Right? When we talk to smaller or lesser known Scottish producers, what's the thing they bring up? Age. Right? Oftentimes, the color of a cask, right? The color of a release. And yeah. people still thinking older is better, but your stuff's young. So so I think it's okay that people are facing the same misconceptions, but I think there's still room for us in the grand scheme of things to occasionally share a misconception that, that's a new one for us. Well, I, I, I appreciate 
the production meeting that we just had. Well, it's how we roll. It's <laughs> what we do. It's what our listeners have come to expect from us. Imagine if we discussed that off air. Our listeners wouldn't know we discussed it. They wouldn't know. They wouldn't know. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe some of them would prefer not knowing, but they're the ones that keep listening to the episodes. So thank you for that. Uh, got a little, unless, unless there's something else you wanted to add, we had a, a little bit of news and it's almost more teaser news than anything, but we, we kind of feel like we have some news to share. We kind of want to get it off our chest. Right. Did you want to move over to news or did you, um, I'm more than ready to hear this teaser. Millionaire Playboy in trouble again. Extra, extra. Is that what he says? Yeah, Millionaire Playboy in trouble again. <laughs> <laughs> I just didn't know that Hugh Hefner lived lived way back then when the and he did, <laughs> and actually he did. Yeah, he yeah. did. <laughs> so, what we wanted to share with people, and, and this is part of the reason we were at Maltstock, which we talked about earlier in the podcast is we've bottled five whiskeys and one rum for the UK slash European slash Israeli slash Canadian market. And a very well-known market. A very well-known market. <laughs> UK, Europe, Israel, Canada. Who's not talking about that market? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess I should have said markets. You know, <laughs> words and and letters have meaning. <laughs> Uh, and, and, and so this was us debuting some of our whiskeys that will be for sale in the Netherlands and, and hopefully also France and Germany and Belgium and, and, and so on. And, and so we're really excited about these whiskeys. Just, just quickly, I'll go down what they are. Brilliant. I love it when okay. you do this because I like revisiting what we're releasing. So what we have... And, and again, this is not for the U.S. However, some well-known online shops who do ship to the U.S. Uh, will be stocking this. So, that, so that's a good thing. <laughs> um, so let me start off first with what with the European releases we poured at malt stock. So we had a nine-year-old blended malt that spent all nine years in a first-fill sherry butt. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a 12-year-old Kalila. Mm-hmm. It's very pretty, very floral. And we can call this one Kalila, which yep. is nice. It's front and center on the label. Makes me happy. And then the other one that we poured at Maltstock was our 13-year-old Tianinich. Yeah, yeah. Nice cereal presence to that mm-hmm. one. There were a few people, because we did the two master classes, but then we also did... Uh, some quick pour with sessions the following yeah. day, yeah. and the Tianinic had a few people say, "Hmm, hmm, what is this? <laughs> oh, that's a that's a Tianinic. Oh, it's quite lovely. Has a yeah. nice cereal presence to yeah. it. Yeah, it's, I, was, I was happy with how it was received. I love pouring Tianinics blind for people mm-hmm. because the name is is as unsexy as it gets." Mm. Uh, first off, you can't pronounce it. Secondly, most people haven't. Have, 
I shouldn't say you can't pronounce it, but the fact of the matter is most people do not know the distillery. Uh, if they see the name and aren't Scottish, they may not know how to pronounce it. And the fact of the matter is it's a damn good whiskey yeah. that's, that's suited so well for blends, much like our 18-year-old Glen Elgin, right? It's suited so well for the White Horse blend. It's nice to highlight these distilleries that, that produce such a solid whiskey. And you pour it blindly for them. And they say, ooh, that's fantastic. What is it? You say, oh, this is tea and nenech. And they say, tea with what now? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, as a very quick aside, yeah. I, I poured on Sunday night, I poured in, in Silver Springs, Maryland for mm-hmm. very supportive listener Tim Mushaw, who we've mentioned many times. Oh, yeah. 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 Poured for his group. And I did everything blind. We did a series of pairings blind. And I poured the 18-year-old Stones of Stenness, which mm-hmm. is an Orkney distillery that's near Scapa, you know, relatively speaking. And mm-hmm. I poured it blind next to our 20-year-old Glenburgie. Ah, okay. And wouldn't you know it, but in a blind pairing, the Glenburgie took... The pairing. And yeah. then you start to say, tell people, oh, well, the, the 18-year-old that you had was actually a, a, an Orkney distillery, somewhat near Scapa. Oh, suddenly people liked it a lot more, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, I see. Meanwhile, the Glenburgie, which they had legitimately liked more, yeah. was now a, well, you know, and <laughs> it was good. It was good. And it's it's amazing, you know. Now that we've yeah. done away, you know, mothballed the misconception series, um, it is interesting how people are still drawn by sexy names, right? They're drawn by sexy names, and they're drawn by ages. And we've yeah. we've you know we've brought up the Westland example yeah. many times yeah. in in the podcast yeah. before, but that's people are people. We all do that. Yep. It's yeah. brand name recognition is a thing. Yep. Uh, old, bigger numbers is a thing. So I I, yep. I get it. I get it. But, you know, this is our job of trying to get people, you know, drag them over that hump. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And that, that's why I bring this up. So, you know, we've done, we've bottled a Milton Duff. We've mm-hmm. bottled a Glenburgie. You just mentioned the Glenelgin earlier. Yeah. Here, here we are talking T and Inic. It's our job and our responsibility to bring little-known, unknown, lesser-known distilleries to people who want to learn about whiskey and have them add those to their their yeah. arsenal. So I'm excited. <laughs> I'm glad it went over well. So with with that said, the other three whiskeys or the other three bottlings that weren't at malt stock that are going to be labeled next week um, was a 13-year-old Kregelicki. Mm, we've had a lot from, of success with Kregelickis. Right. And that was the Kregelickis we've done, I think, were refill bourbon, and this one is a second-fill bourbon, so a bit more oak, a bit creamier in style. And then a 12-year-old Tomatin, first-fill bourbon. Mm. Very excited about that one. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, obviously Kregelik and Tomatin have their own bottlings, but they're not huge brands. 
in and of themselves. So it, it'll be nice to introduce people to these distilleries through our bottlings. And hey, if you like it, great. Go just go check out Krigelke's bottlings. Go check out Tomatin. There's a reason we bottle whiskey from these distilleries. They're making great stuff. Yep, exactly. Uh, and then finally, the fifth bottling is not a whiskey. It's a rum. It's a Trinidadian rum from the Angostura distillery. And it's when you say the f- When you say the fifth bottling, do you I said mean the, the sixth. sixth bottling? No, I said the sixth. You said the fifth. I think I said the sixth. It's on wax. No, I think now I can't hear a word because I had to take out the earbuds. So whatever you're saying right now, I can't hear a word. <laughs> Did I miss anything? Has it been horrible yeah. while I've been away? Yeah, no, it, it 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 it's it's I divulged my my deepest secrets to you and to the social listeners. security number. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so anyway, the the rum spent 16 years in a refill sherry hogshead. That's crazy, man. And so you That's get really these, crazy. Yeah, these nice sort of heavier, jammier notes coming through with that. So really excited to have those. But here's the thing, Jason. You and I, sir, are located in the US. We are. And these whiskeys and rums will be sold in the UK and in Europe and in Israel and in Canada, that market. <laughs> that singular market. <laughs> and while we will have a big reveal at a later date, we're very excited to say that we've hired our very first employee who is based in Glasgow. And we're so excited to have her on board. Yep. Yep. Our European sales, sales manager, manager is yep. uh, is real. It's a real position with a real person yep. in it. Yep. And we yep. couldn't be more excited to have this person join the team. Yeah. And that's all we're going to say for the moment. There will be a larger reveal in a future episode. Mm-hmm. Jason, before we get out of here, because we do need oh. to get out of here. All right. Jeez. We... It's almost like you're sending me back to work or something. No. We received an email uh, from James Foster a few weeks ago. It, it is, and, yeah. yeah. Right? And almost and four I, weeks to the day. Really? Okay. Yeah. Sorry, James. Uh, I thought we were anyway, doing quite well, to be honest <laughs> with you. <laughs> but let's, I, I thought his question was an interesting one. I see where he's coming from, having asked it. And then we do have an answer for him. So, Jason, why don't you read the question and then we'll go ahead and, yeah. and, and respond. This is a good email. This, this reads like it comes from somebody who writes to us a fair bit and who we're friendly <laughs> with. Because he just jumps straight into a question. There's, there's no salutation. There's no warm-up text. He just gets right down to business. Oh, wait a second. He didn't say hi or anything? No. Oh, okay, forget it. No, James don't read it. does not have time to say hi. This is a pressing question that he has jumped straight into. No, no, no. You're supposed to start off each email with nope. hello, so-and-so. Ain't nobody How get time you? for that shit. I hope this email finds you well and that you've been enjoying your time and such and such. Okay, here we go. Ready? I hope you're sitting down. Sitting down. 
Would it be possible to list SCN retailers on your webpage or on the podcast? It's good to know the distributors, but that doesn't help get bottles on my shelves. I spent a lot of time zigzagging through the interwebs, but there are many retailers linked to your distributors who don't carry SCN or who don't mention it online. All that time I spent on the computer would have been better spent emptying a glass or three. Jay. He just... Jay, and then he's out of there. That's it. End of email. It's like a mic drop. So this is a three-part answer to a one-part question. I'm sitting down. I'm I'm getting comfy. I guess, seeing as I just laid it out there, I guess I should answer. So so the first part of the answer, uh, good James Foster. Yes, very good James Foster. It's a very short answer, and the answer is no. We cannot and will not be listing retailers on our website or on this podcast. Now, why is that? Well, first and foremost, because of the limited aspect of our whiskeys, product goes into stock, product goes out of stock. A retailer may have liked whiskeys from release number four, but didn't like whiskeys from release number five, and so they decide not to bring it in. We could put up a retailer's name right now, and that will be an invalid answer come two weeks from now or a month from now or three months from now. However, what remains fixed for the most part, because we haven't, we don't, we haven't, and we do not plan on changing uh, any, uh, our distributors will remain fixed. And so, so that's the answer to part one. Unfortunately, we cannot, will not be adding in retailers' names. We're happy to connect you to retailers. If you if you want to reach out to us, info at Singlecast Nation. You know, we've done this before. People have reached out to us and we've tried to connect them to retailers. Well, remember too as well, we have the Hive. We have Singlecast Nation Facebook page. And we right. have yep. m- thousands of members sharing which stores they're buying Singlecast Nation retail from. Exactly. So you The can Hive ask is there. there to take advantage of as well. <clears throat> Correct. And you can always email Impex Beverages, who is our importer as well. They can put two and two together and get you the answers you need. Okay. So, and then the other part, which James, living in Idaho, I know this doesn't necessarily apply to you, but for the states where we do have distribution, the distributor's name is actually a huge help to people. You go to your favorite shop. They don't have single cast nation whiskeys. That's fine. That's understandable. And you you say, hey, ABC distributors hold single cast nation. I'm interested in such and such a bottle. Can you try to bring it in? And they'll bring it in for you. That's you know a common relationship with the retailer. Now you or other people not living in states where we're distributed, I would say wine-searcher.com is your friend. It's a great website. You can look for a whiskey. You can even narrow it down to states, or you can have it look in all 50 states. You can also have it search by states that ship to your state. Yes, you can. Right? So, So there's some options there. You've got a very good website that will help you find stuff in a fast manner. So you can pour a glass, search for it, finish the glass, purchase your bottle, have it shipped to you. 
Or if you're in a state where we are distributed, go to your favorite shop. If they don't have it, see if they'll bring it in. Yeah, I, I love, love, love the fact that James um, you know, is one of many people reaching out to us to ask that question, how do I get your whiskey? I love the fact that people know, are in search of our whiskey. Uh, when we poured the Clinlish 23-year-old, an mm-hmm. American retail release for Single Cast Nation, when we poured that at Maltstock, just as just to give people a sense of our palettes, our selections, mm-hmm. how many people based in Europe said, where do I get this? I want to <laughs> own this. And, yeah. and so we're about to experience... Uh, a seismic shift in single cast nation. All right. We are about to go from only bringing whiskies to America for an American audience who have been hugely supportive of us. Yes. While leaving Europe out in the cold with them saying, but I want some, where do I get some? To now sending bottles exclusively into Europe that will not be coming to America, Mm. where that American fan base, those wonderful nation supporters here in the US, will start to say, I want that one. How do I get that one? And so I want to echo something you said earlier, which is there are retailers in the UK who will be stocking this who do ship to the United States. Mm-hmm. And we are doing our best to make sure they stock us so that we can support our nation members who are in search yes. of certain bottles. Yes. And the, the last, so that has me very excited. You know, as I can see, as, right? Yeah. As, you know, as someone who goes. I was the penis who, with who, you, Joshua. Was that? I was the penis with you, Joshua. Go easy. Well. Raise, could you just raise the camera a little higher for me? I'm, I'm seeing. <laughs> I'm just seeing too much right now. You're too excited. <laughs> Calm down. I'm so excited. You're like a dog with a bone. Um, you know, as as someone as a whiskey lover who lives with FOMO almost every day, you know, seeing the the special releases that don't come to the U.S. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. You know, I I, I understand. You know, visiting the various online whiskey retailers and saying, oh, "Okay, I can get it from them," yeah. and and getting well, excited. We have very, very dear friends in Scotland for whom we purchase Westland products. Mm-hmm. We purchase Westland special releases for them, and then we take them to Scotland when we see them. Yes, this is kind of how the world works. We have just never been a part of that world. Exactly. Exactly. And so the last thing I want to say, which, you know, just to, just to close out my, my answer to James is while the, the scenarios I offered up are not ideal, we being a small producer are in a very large boat with many other small producers who have to say the very same thing. Mm-hmm. You real, you interested in our products? Thank you so much. Here is how you have to get them. And and this is, I hear that all the time. Go to your favorite shop. We're distributed by Winebow. We're distributed by Skernick. We're distributed by whoever. And 
So I go to my shop and I say, hey, Pinto, I'm interested in getting this. And then he orders it for me. Yeah, yeah I, I think part of what we hear from James is when you live in a controlled state. So Idaho is controlled. I live in Virginia, which is controlled. Some of our listeners live in Pennsylvania, which is controlled. Yeah. When you live in a controlled state, you feel like you have no power in any of this. I know, it sucks. And so when you kind of offhandedly make reference to going into your store and asking them to order you something, that's a, an amazing position to be in that not all of us get to do that. And it's yes. hugely frustrating, hugely yeah. so. And I'm lucky. I've got DC just a couple of hours away who bring in a whole bunch of bottles that I desperately mm -hmm. want. Um, there are retail stores in California who will ship to me in Virginia. And I'm able to get some things that way. But it is being creative. And it, it always surprises me that in 2019 in these United States, you still have to be creative to get whiskey to your front door. I know. And that's not going to change anytime soon. You're, because we are right. a states' right kind of a country and not a federal rights kind of country. Yeah, although you, you know, we're not going to go into it, but there's some states' rights being eroded in California right now. And so, yep, you know, yep. that's yeah. that's kind of a remarkable thing to see. But we will table that. We got our, we got our tariff talk with Scott Harris. Mm -hmm. We will, we will leave our, ourselves there. So, yeah. Exactly. So yeah. So as always, thanks to James for writing in and being such a, a wonderful supporter of of the podcast and all things yes. Single Cast Nation. He's a, a wonderful, wonderful human being, and a, and I really, I really cherish him. Speaking of oh. people who are wonderful supporters of the podcast and supporters of Single Cast Nation and whom we love and cherish, yeah. Yeah. Michael Nolan and his wonderful wife Bonnie, yes, who live in Chicago are coming to my house this afternoon. Shut the front door. <laughs> yeah, yeah, later are you today. Me? Yeah, later today I will be drinking with Michael Nolan and Bonnie Nolan in that my in my house. Brilliant. Yeah, I'm super excited. Can't believe we get to see them. It, on your turf. <laughs> wonderful We're thing. always in their turf, but and we've been to their house on multiple multiple yeah. occasions. Yeah, but no, uh, they're Nolan, to you. Nolan said to me, "Just tell me the date." And I, I told him the date, September 19, and he's going to yeah. be here. So that was it. Tell me the date. Tell me the date. Love it. Love it. Absolutely love it. Well, cool. Well, you have fun with them. Please give them uh, hugs and kisses from me. Of course. Of course. And I think on that note, we don't have a misconception. I know. I think we just kind of say goodbye to people. Is that a thing? Is that the thing we do? Let's see if we can do it, Joshua. Fucking hell. Bye to people. Bye to people. Potato. Two potato. And then, see, three potato. Four. Josh gave me into trouble because I did that with a distiller at um, Statesville. Right. And she said one potato. I said one potato. She said two potato. 
and I didn't do anything with it. Yeah. He was like, Jason, you you left her hanging. <laughs> and I was like, oh, three potato. Three potato and then, and the then I say four. four. That's a thing? Yeah. <laughs> See? See, we're all learning. See, <laughs> I, I knew it was a thing. I wouldn't have started yeah, we, we there, but did. I just we knew just it had to right be done. Yeah. yeah, if you say duck and I say duck, then if you don't goose. say goose. <laughs> all these American things I am not privy to. You know, you in a circle in kindergarten, and one kid goes around the circle tapping kids on the head, going duck, 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 duck. And when he randomly decides, he says goose, and then that kid has to get up and chase him around the circle. And if he tags him, then he has to be the goose. So I've seen my kids sits down. play it. I've never known the rules. Yeah. Okay. Wow. We'll get a little rousing game for you. Everyone's already sweating out there.